Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives again and was recorded in March of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Alan Tunnelson. Alan received his bachelor's degree in history from Princeton University and is currently a research fellow at the U.S. Business and Industry Council, a non-governmental lobbying group that fights for the growth of domestic manufacturing in the United States. He was also a fellow at the Henry Stimson Center and Economic Strategy Institute, where he focused on manufacturing and offshoring. Mr. Tomlinson runs his blog, Reality Check, which focuses on domestic production, U.S. trade deficits, free trade, and globalization. He is the author of Race to the Bottom, which examines the role free trade and globalization have on declining wages and global labor standards around the world. Mr. Tonelson talked about the domestic economic impacts of offshoring, protective tariffs, how free trade helped create the 07 financial crisis, and even added in a Twilight Zone reference. We hope you enjoy this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Alan, your uh, lone wolf digging for facts, Alan, reminds me of an episode on, on the Twilight Zone with Rod Serling called To Serve Man. And the story goes something like this. A group of aliens landed on planet Earth, and instead of terrorizing Earthlings, they came in peace and were very helpful and got the attention and the uh, confidence of Earthlings. And soon the Earthlings were traveling to their planet to see this wondrous galaxy and planet with these very helpful invaders, but not really invaders. And uh, there was this one lonely researcher who had their book called To Serve Man in English, but it was in their language inside. And, and he was a code breaker trying to decipher what that book had said. And everyone's going to the new planet. They're going, but they're not coming back. And finally, he cracked the code, and the episode ends with him running down to the spaceship dock with lots of people ready to board the spaceship. And he's screaming, don't go, don't go. This is a cookbook. To Serve Man is a cookbook on how to cook human beings. Well, Alan Tonelson, in effect, said to the American people, you know, this is a cookbook to eat man, globalization. And he proceeded in granular detail to outline how that was going on. Now, interesting, I talked to a number of researchers who talk about the global issues of globalization and all of that, but Alan Tonelson was a guy who got into the details, point by point, of what had gone on. And the story is frightening, but revealing. And we're gonna ask Alan some of those details early on, having to do with globalization, outsourcing, and why he knew that it would eventually end up hurting Americans, decimating our manufacturing, and, and causing a financialization to compensate for the lack and loss of industry. So Alan, why don't you pick up when you first started to divine that something new was happening with globalization and outsourcing? Well, thanks so much, first of all, Handy, for having me on. And I do remember that Twilight Zone episode very well. It was very chilling. And uh, I think you're right. What has been happening 
happening to the American economy for the last roughly 25 or 30 years has been equally chilling. And unfortunately, the, con the country's power structure um, not only doesn't seem to be aware of it, they have been actively enabling this. So um, rather than being part of the uh, the so-called solution right now, they're cl they've clearly been part of, uh, part of the problem. But I was working um, with a group of smaller manufacturing companies back in the 1990s. It was called the U.S. Business and Industry Council. And these were the kinds uh, of companies that certainly welcomed free and fair competition and were, in so many cases, world-class producers in their own fields. But it was increasingly becoming apparent to them uh, that, that Washington, or at least so it seemed, had it in for them. Because Washington kept on signing and passing trade agreements whose main purpose seemed to be um, to expose them to a no to really plunge them into a no-win competition against foreign rivals that were not only frequently from much lower cost countries naturally, but whose governments heavily subsidized economic and specifically manufacturing activity, who fooled around with their exchange rates and essentially, uh, and essentially protected their own markets then, and who set up a very powerful magnet for US manufacturing investment. And why that was so important for these companies was they weren't selling the kinds of products you see on the shelves at Walmart or AutoZone or even in an auto dealership. Uh, they weren't selling finished final goods. They were largely selling parts and components of much larger, much more sophisticated manufacturing systems, like automobiles, like aircraft, like machine tools. And therefore, their main customers were not retail stores. They were these multinational manufacturers themselves. And the effect of these trade deals, it seemed increasingly clear to all of us, was to send those, multi those multilateral manufacturers overseas. Um, and to encourage their supply chains, which had included, which had included our member companies, to migrate with them. And our folks said, "Why should we do that? Why should we be pushed, for artificial reasons, to set up shop in a place like China or a place like like Mexico? Um, if market forces were really in charge, we would be producing quite competitively at home." And our trade policies have turned into a major problem. They were not encouraging production and job creation at home. They were encouraging production and job creation overseas at the expense of the American economy. And it was that situation um, that really got me to uh, that that really got me to look at this whole process in that very detail-oriented manner that 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 excuse me that you had mentioned. Okay, the, the question, of course, is why did they do it? We, I mean, ostensibly, if you're working in manufacturing with subcontractors, and I'm a manu manufacturing man who's done that, we like to build up subcontractors, know what we're doing that we can work intimately with, because there's learning by doing, you know, uh, aspects that adhere to making a better technology, better product, and it's a cumulative effect 
to have this network close at hand where you can work with the manufacturers and engineering. It's a secret of, uh, of, of manufacturing success, or it has been historically. So why would the American multinationals all of a sudden forego that? It's a risky thing. I mean, cheap labor is one thing, but all things being uh, considered, we've always been able to outproduce out the world. We've always had the highest wages. So that never was a problem for us before. Our technologies and our, and our density of production processes was always a counterweight to that. So why now? Why 30 years ago do we defy 200 years of American history and in a, in abruptly change course? And you've studied the effects of that. Right. I, I, I would cite, excuse me, two main reasons. And you actually referred to one in your introduction, the American economy's financialization. And it's obviously a very complicated story, but to make that long story short, it greatly in inclined U.S. executives to stop thinking long term, to stop thinking about making sure that their company and its workforce and all of its uh, capital assets would survive over the long term and, and in fact, dramatically improve over the long term, to start thinking short term, to start thinking, how can I make the fastest possible buck? So that was one enormously important development. And it stemmed from decisions in U.S. regulatory policy uh, that, again, contributed to this, uh, this, this very powerful financialization of the entire economy. The second, uh, the, 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 the second explanation that I would cite would be the U.S. government's failure for a wide variety of both economic and foreign policy reasons um, to enable U.S. manufacturers in particular to cope adequately with the challenge that they were facing from Japan and from Germany in particular, starting in the really late 1970s, right through the late 1980s and early 1990s. And once again, to make a very long, complicated story short, U.S. multinational companies decided, you know, Washington is not going to help us out. It's not going to make sure that this predatory competition from these two very formidable manufacturing powers stops or even eases up. So we have to really do what's best for us and what's best for our companies, not only in the in in the short term, but for the longer term too. And we have to cut costs dramatically. And the way that they realized they could do this would be to produce overseas in much lower cost, not only lower wage, but overall lower cost locations, first Mexico and then China, and supply the U.S. market, which was still a very high priced market, from those much lower cost locations. And that was a great way to strengthen their own profit lines. They lowered costs. They kept their prices where they were. And they were laughing all the way to the bank. Well, of course, the problem with that is that sooner or later, the, there was not enough purchasing power on the American side to buy that product from the foreign side at those low prices. I mean, meanwhile, we're supporting a high infrastructure, a high educational apparatus from being an industrial power for 100 years, the past 100 years, to suddenly undercut the payments to support that infrastructure just to get short-term wages was short-sighted indeed. I mean, Germany, for example, hasn't done that to this day, and neither has Japan. They've protected 
their manufacturing at all hazards. Why would the United States not impose duties or tariffs to, to stop that competition, which, which was based on newer capital equipment and cheaper wages, at least in the 70s and 80s from Japan and, and Germany? Why didn't we just tariff that? Why would we have allowed unrestricted free trade, even though it would hollow us out, unless we looked at it from a much bigger perspective, let's say an empire perspective. I'm a, I'm a banker in New York. I love to play with the bankers in New York concept. But I finally say, okay, I don't really see how I can defend America in that manufacturing sense. And I'm an international finance entity, and I have the military might of America to back me anyway. Why don't I just take a bigger picture of my world and say it's international, not America, and not worry about the American labor force as opposed to a worldwide labor force, which was much more pliable and dealable, manageable, non-union, lower price, and, and so forth. So if I look at it from abandoning my national imperatives, then it starts to make a little more sense. Once you realize that nobody was going to help stop it, nobody was going to put tariffs up, nobody was going to uh, interfere in that process, then it's understandable why the big guy said, hell, let's Let's join it. But they didn't inform the American people or the American worker about the implications of that. You actually did. I mean, your work, if you read it in granular detail, cites, in fact, it's almost a horror story, Alan, I'd have to tell you. The details of, of subcontracting, passing off inf information technology, I mean, this becomes irreversible. Okay, we got a really important lesson about how difficult these trends are to reverse uh, from President Obama and uh, the boss of Apple Computer, Tim Cook, about three years ago or so. They were having a conversation in the White House and President Obama at one point asked Mr. Cook, you know, he, he held up an iPhone and he said, Tim, why can't we make these things here? We're a high-tech country. We've got a lot of smart people. We're the world's most advanced economy in so many ways. And yet you make virtually all of your gadgets overseas in places like China. What gives? And Tim Cook basically said, look, when we want to crank up production on a big scale to turn out a zillion iPhones in fairly short order, because customers want them now. We can't do that in the United States. Now, I'd be the last person to say that this damage is irreversible, but boy, it's going to be tough to reverse. Well, again, I think it's clear, especially since I came from a manufacturing background, I know how devastating it can be to outsource. But if I can get a cheap price and, and, and I can skirt uh, tariffs coming back and the government will finance the missing purchasing power, I'm good with that from a short-term point of view, as you, you pointed out. But from a government policy point of view, we've really sacrificed a generation or two of American middle and working class people, relatively speaking. Now, I'm overstating the case because obviously, if you're a working class kid and you go to Harvard and you're pretty bright, you're still okay. And the top 10% of the population is still okay. It effect, in effect can work as an executive committee of a worldwide empire, and it almost is indifferent to where things are made. But the jobs, the mid-level and low-level, and the, the whole ladder of jobs, which were given by manufacturing and its offshoot, are going and are gone from this country, and we're down to 8% manufacturing, 
And the jobs that we have are service jobs, the low-level jobs, they don't, don't pay anywhere near what that pays. And now we're stuck with, we've, we over-financialized to, to, to capture the missing purchasing power. We're $8 trillion more in debt. We're at a dead end, there's nothing we can do. And everyone's wringing their hands about, oh my God, how this happened. Well, you demonstrated how it happened over the last 15 years in excruciating detail. Why do you think it happened? That's really the question. They're certainly not terribly concerned about the American workforce, much less the nation's long-term future. Uh, for, for 25 or 30 years, that's not the way that they have been trained. And they have bought this mammoth pig in a poke, this financialization meme, this notion that short-term shareholder value maximization is not only all the counts, but that is bound to produce the best results for the greatest number of people over the long term. And um, what's especially discouraging is that that entire narrative was completely exploded with the outbreak of the financial crisis in 2007 and 2008. We discovered just how cataclysmic a heavily financialized economy could be, not only for our country, but for the entire world. Because we have to remember, the entire global financial system really melted down um, into the kind of slag heap we haven't seen since the 1930s. Um, and yet, if you look at what Washington is doing right now, um, very high uh, on the agenda, of not only the Obama administration, but Congress is passing more offshoring friendly trade deals. In fact, it's widely noted by journalists and commentators that trade policy, again, in this pro-offshore is one of the very few areas in which President Obama and the Republican-controlled Congress agree. Okay, it's a, and it is a monolithic two-party uh, belief that globalization outsourcing somehow in the long term will make things right. That Americans, of course, uh, I think Robert Reich originally said that Americans would, would be doing the brain work somehow and all the dirty work would be doing everybody by everybody else. And yet you de detail that not only the ordinary work has been sent offshore, but the brain work has been sent offshore and that the Americans are supposedly who are going to be educated and teach the world how to how to uh, spend their money, uh, finding out that the rest of the world is reading the same publications and they're educating their kids. So that, that advantage is gone. So where do we go from here? Well, let's just back up momentarily because it's very important to understand how this massive offshoring triggered that financial crisis that we're still struggling to recover from. Nobody is... is remotely satisfied with the, the pace of the American economic recovery, except maybe President Obama, who in his State of the Union address about three weeks ago said that we finally, quote, turned the page on that very painful chapter in our economic history. When the manufacturing went offshore, the manufacturing production, the income earning opportunities went offshore too, or at least lots of the very best income earning opportunities. And so Washington in its infinite genius hit on a master plan to cover up for the loss of income earning opportunities. And it was called easy money. It basically told and enabled Americans to maintain their living standards 
not by earning their way in the world, but by borrowing. The Federal Reserve decided that it was going to sink interest rates down to multi-decade peacetime lows. It was going to stoke a housing bubble. And in 2007 and 2008, we found out not only what an awfully uh, cataclysmic national business plan that was for the United States, we found out what a horrendous approach this was to economics for the entire world, because we have to remember the entire global financial system nearly melted down. Um, unfortunately, six years later, what do we see? Washington is still pursuing offshoring-focused trade deals. It's a very high priority for President Obama. It's an even higher priority, it seems, for the Republican-controlled Congress. And in fact, what are we constantly hearing from Washington pundits? Trade policy, these offshoring deals, is one of the few areas in which President Obama and his Republican opponents in Congress can actually agree. Yeah, well, the, again, uh, we see that finance is not the answer, but yet, if you look at corporate pol uh, profits, they're at an all-time high, so the 50 top multinationals are certainly not complaining. They, as independent entities, if you look at them as kind of privateers in the world, they're doing quite, quite well. And in fact, I think corporate profits today are at an all-time high as our, our budget deficits are, so that you can almost find the linkage between budget deficits and profits and low wages seem to go together. And hedge fund in earnings and so forth are sky high all, all over again. And these are the people who can donate and to campaigns and get the right people elected. So we have almost an insoluble problem. We have a group of people who all of this wreckage has not hurt them one bit. You can go to New York, you can walk around New York every night, and it's a wonderful world. Has nothing to do with the rest of, rest of America. Has nothing to do with it. This is like a world unto its own. It's financed on its own. It takes its money from everywhere in the world. Uh, it's independent of any labor force. Uh, hedge funders have got opportunities in financial. To this day, they make money if it's going up or going down. It's all the same to them. How do the American people, first of all, even understand this? And second of all, what can they possibly do about it? The information has been there and absolutely not acted upon. Well, I think that one of the uh, one of the most troubling aspects of um, of what's happened to this country over the last twenty five or thirty years has to do with the offshoring lobby, as I like to call them, um, has basically convinced the nation's media class is absolutely true. Um, and the one point that keeps being made over and over again. Across the board, seem to have swallowed hook, line, and sinker is something, again, that you referred to earlier. Um, if we can only fix the schools, if we can only give American workers what former President Clinton used to call the skills to form a bridge to the 21st century uh, to equip them to work in the kinds of knowledge-intensive industries, the so-called brain work that wouldn't face this cutthroat competition from very low-wage countries, all would be well. And so the focus has been on fixing the schools, on retraining workers, on re-educating workers, even though it should be clear as a bell to anyone, especially Republicans, that Washington has absolutely no ability to retrain workers to take better jobs. And, 
And, and what's especially striking is that this competition from very low-wage countries is coming uh, in very sophisticated industries, including computer software. That, was, that either wasn't supposed to happen at all, for some reason, uh, or it wasn't supposed to happen quite this quickly, but it became inevitable once the offshoring business model was established because, because the offshoring model wasn't was never supposed to be restricted, at least in the minds of U.S. multinational executives, um, to simple production jobs and to labor-intensive work. So, and if you follow that line of thinking, there's also hundreds and hundreds of millions of new workers being thrown into the workforce over the last 20 or 30 years who would basically work at any price. Every year, 12 million more young people from India competing for jobs with young people from this country. And that 12 million number is quite interesting because that's just about the number of manufacturing workers total left in the United States. So when you add up the, the score, if you're an American middle class and you're delusional about thinking that uh, the opportunities are going to be the same in the future that they were in the past, even though technology, of course, is much better today than uh, in, in, in the past. Uh, they don't understand that bargaining power can take away the gains of technology instantly. And it's, uh, as, as George, as we argue against monopoly bargaining power of any type for the very reasons and outcomes that we've just described. And, uh, but again, some it always benefits from these policies, or else they, would, they wouldn't continue. And, these, and therefore, we, we, uh, I had an interesting interview with a, bright, a very bright man who you have to know well in, in his books, who's kind of preached against what's, what's going on in terms of the free trade and so forth, Ravi Batra. And Ravi believes that he could go to the President of the United States and show the President how he can reverse many of these policies and equalized bargaining power, which he can do. There's no question his solutions are great. The real question to Ravi and to everybody is, what is the likelihood that President Obama or any president, whether it's Clinton or Bush or anything, has the degrees of freedom to unilaterally intervene in this very powerful and cumulative process that's going on today? I think uh, that, the, that at this point, sir, Certainly and uh, tragically for the foreseeable future, the odds of success are, are really pretty darn low. And I, I, I say that for two main reasons. One, um, as I hope everybody realizes, um, in Washington, money is power. And unfortunately, we have such a completely corrupt campaign finance system uh, that those with the fattest wallets inevitably have the greatest influence over American public policy. And nobody has got fatter wallets than, than, than the offshoring lobby. Uh, the, the, the second problem that we keep running into is yet another myth that's actively propagated by the offshoring lobs and the national media in particular, and that is that What's been happening to the global economy and to the American economy are really forces of nature um, that have been set in, in motion that no man, 
woman or national government, even as powerful as the United States, can really hope to control. We're talking about, about technological progress. We're talking about the revolution in, in transportation, and that these results of globalization's uh, um, progression um, are simply inevitable. And what is constantly left out by design is that although obviously technology keeps advancing, obviously transportation keeps getting better, and obviously those are very good things, but the world economy uh, and how it works is also based on a system of man-made arrangements, man-made institutions, man-made rules, and man-made relationships. And those can be reversed just as any human decision can be reversed, or if you prefer modifying. We don't lack the wallet here in a sense, we lack the will. And I, unfortunately, I see very little prospect that that will is going to be reconstituted at least enough anytime soon. Well, let's talk about uh, this inevitability of globalization. That implies that everyone's standing helplessly by, being overrun by forces. And basically, if you look at them and say, well, what are you gonna do about it? We're, everyone's saying, well, we can't do anything about it. But if you look at the relentless rise of incomes and structure and institutions that support the rise of income uh, in, in relatively few hands, there doesn't seem to be anything random about that process. For all of the chaos of globalization, it's quite tightly compacted, the incomes and who they accrue to. There's nothing random about that, which belies the whole idea that this is a mindless process that can't be controlled, as you pointed out. We refuse to, to take advantage to capitalize on the immense leverage that we have in any trade negotiation. We simply persuade ourselves, or at least we tell the, the, the American people for uh, public consumption that we're basically impotent and, and uh, maybe we can tweak here and there, but let the chips fall where they may and everybody will be much better off eventually. Well, let me interject right there. Yes, we can argue that this is the prize, but this is a, a country that's basically operating by plugging finance that's created out of thin air to make up for the hard assets and the hard money. This is a process that can't go on indefinitely. It can go on for a period of time because the United States has the reserve currency. The United States is smart enough to have people pay for oil with U.S. dollars. So there are a number of things you can do to buttress the finance, but we're the buyer of last resort here. You can't build infinite capital structures selling the credit forever. And when the denouement occurs, all hell's going to break loose. And of course, uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that was quite cute the other day at Davos. A lot of the people were discussing where they're going to hide and run to when the deluge hits. There, one guy was reported to have been purchasing a, a farm in New Zealand with an airport, and he was ready. So, I mean, the mentality is everybody who's a policymaker with half a brain knows that this is unsustainable. But I guess the idea is, like uh, Louis XV, I think, said, after me, the deluge. Uh, what are we going to do about that? What can we do about that? We're going, to have a, we're going to have an election where the best finance candidate is none other than Hillary Clinton, the wife of that arch free trader Bill Clinton, who was a liberal Democrat when he started and became a Bush Republican when he finished. And, uh, and the American people will no doubt elect her 
president? Where do we go from here? Well, the only strand of hope that I can uh, see is that when she ran for when she ran and for the Democratic nomination back in 2008, for a time, especially when the, the primary schedule took her to the manufacturing heavy states of the, the Midwest, like Pennsylvania and especially Ohio, um, she became quite actively involved in trade policy debates. And she spoke quite emphatically, surprisingly emphatically, about the need for major change. In fact, she was much more into this issue than Senator Obama was. Uh, it was obvious from watching him, from reading his statements, from looking at his website, that this issue simply did not float his boat at all. Hillary Clinton understood somebody with access to her at a very high level convinced her there were votes to be had here and you should be out there on the stump talking about this. Where she is right now, after several years of having served as uh, as President Obama's Secretary of State, is really anybody's guess. Obviously, she is a a a, a she is the um, consummate um, political animal with very keen instincts. If the economy is bad enough at that point, those instincts um, could turn out to be very constructive for trade policy. But uh, my crystal ball, I have to admit, is really pre pretty cloudy on that score. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we can conclude this. Any, uh, any hope for us, uh, Alan, any policies? If you were president, what would you do? Well, I think that... Uh, that this country's economic policy mix needs an overhaul across the board. But if we're talking about trade policy, there are some, some very specific, very concrete steps that should be taken ASAP. The first one is to follow that first rule of the Hippocratic Oath, do no more harm. We also need to greatly broaden the by American regulations that, that govern federal government procurement and also, frankly, state and local government procurement as well. The federal government and state and local governments are tremendous actors in the American economy. They buy enormous amounts of goods and services every year, and they spend taxpayer dollars to do it. When they spend taxpayer dollars on services, those goods and services that should be axiomatic, should be made in the United States, should come from U.S. companies and U.S. workers wherever possible. We also, by the way, need to make sure that when foreign companies, including state-owned companies, want to come into this U.S. economy to take advantage of our enormous market, that the rule is, if you want to sell to American consumers, that's great, but you have to make your product here, too. One more very important uh, uh, policy change uh, that would help fix our trade and manufacturing problems tremendously is dealing with with what you might call discriminatory foreign value-added tax systems, without getting too technical, because after all, tax policy gets awfully technical. These foreign value-added taxes, which every American tourist has run into overseas, I'm sure, but which the United States has no counterpart for, act as hidden barriers to the export of U.S. products overseas, and they act as hidden subsidies for foreign exports heading for this market. And finally, we have to make sure that foreign governments don't get away with deliberately undervaluing their currencies to make their goods and services 
artificially cheaper versus the U.S. made goods and services that they're competing with. Um, it's not so much a matter of leveling playing fields because um, world playing fields are so varied that that's not going to happen. It's a matter of making sure that the U.S. government acts to ensure reasonably equitable competition for U.S. companies and their workers in this market and all over the world using the matchless market power that this still immense U.S. economy has. All right, Alan, uh, I think we'll wrap it up here. We'll pick it up another time. It was a wonderful interview, and your granular detail and understanding is well appreciated as to what has gone on in the American market. We still haven't figured out whose attention we can get to make some changes, but that's for another time and another session and another, another uh, discussion. But thanks again, Alan. We'll be talking. I'll be seeing you soon. Well, thank you again. And uh, certainly hope to see, you at, uh, to see you at the end of this month. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.